The Bible reading today is from Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. If we haven't met before, my name is Carl. I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Unley here. I only get to say that for a few more weeks, and then I have to say that I'm one of the pastors here, which is really terrific, and I'm excited about that. Uh, if you didn't see it when you came in, there are letters on the hall table out here. If we've got your name on our database, then there's a letter for you on the hall table, which just has an update for you about where we're at as a church and where we're going next year. Uh, so please uh, don't forget to grab the letter off the table on your way out. This morning, uh, let me just remind you as well with our new COVID check-in stuff, if you haven't scanned the COVID check-in um, QR code at some point, please do that at some stage this morning before you leave as well. Well, I wonder if there's a favourite summer sport in your household. I think in our household, cricket is right up there as the favourite summer sport. But I also don't mind watching the Australian Open tennis when it comes around in January. I don't know if it's happening this year, but when it comes around most years over in Melbourne. And I think what I really like about tennis is the rivalry that goes on between players. And over many years now, the greatest rivalry in tennis has been that between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal. They've played each other something like 40 times. As I understand it, Nadal is currently leading, having won 24 of those matches as opposed to Federer's 16. But that's possibly just because Rafa seems to dominate on the clay courts. He's won 14 of the 16 matches they've played on clay. If you take the clay courts out of the battle then, then in a sense they're fairly evenly poised in this rivalry. Fairly evenly matched, you might say. I reckon Federer wins in the kind of nice guy stakes. He's one of the most distinguished, isn't he, professional sports players of all time. And Nadal, on the other hand, he kind of wins because he's got that kind of, you know, quirks, those obsessive compulsive behaviours that he has, like the flick of his hair and the tugging of his underpants and the moving of his water bottle to exactly the right spot before he will play. He was once visibly distracted by a ball boy who put a third water bottle into his area. He couldn't start properly until there was only two water bottles there. You know, for me, the closeness of the rivalry, I think, is what makes watching the tennis 
pretty interesting. That and the knowledge that Federer was born in the same year that I was, and so if he can still play tennis at the professional level, I can't be that old yet. I think I enjoy that part of their rivalry as well. I wonder if there's a sporting rivalry that you enjoy. Perhaps it was uh, Andre Agassi versus Pete Sampras in the tennis of old, or maybe you're into soccer and the competitions between Brazil and Argentina over the years, or maybe you're a netball player and you like the competition between the Australian Diamonds and New Zealand's Silver Ferns. Today we've read part of Matthew chapter 2 that Jamie read for us. And in a way, this is showing us about the rivalry between two kings. And yet, no matter which way you look at it, You wouldn't call this rivalry, at least at first glance, evenly matched. This is not Federer versus Nadal. This is a vulnerable newborn baby against a ruling king who has at his command armies. One is poor, the other has the whole wealth of a nation at his disposal. One's too young, probably even to walk, the other's a fully grown man. Yet in this passage, we see the Father, God the Father's providential care for the baby Jesus and for his family. And at that, that first glance, it just looks like baby Jesus will be a pushover. We see in the end that it's the helpless baby Jesus that will prevail. You might ask, why or how can that possibly be? I think the answer to that is because he's the long-promised king and he's under the providential care of his father. And at another level, this is a story, I think, about good versus evil. There's plenty of evil in the world today, isn't there? We've all seen that in our lifetimes, probably in different ways. But today our passage shows us that God will prevail It shows us that God's plans, that they're not thwarted by evil in the world. And it shows us the power of our God. I don't know if you noticed that when Jamie read, but there are kind of three sections in our passage today. You'll see that in the leaflet outline if you've got that with you. And each of these three sections, it fulfills, or at least it alludes to fulfilling, an Old Testament prophecy. And so here's the big idea that I'd love you to take away from our passage today. Here it is. God is in control, providentially in control. It doesn't matter that our world might be a terrible place. It doesn't matter that sin has corrupted this world. Evil will not triumph. God is still at work in this world. That's what I want you to see from our passage today. Our first section is Matthew Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, where we see God's providential care by bringing Jesus from where he is into Egypt. Now, if you were with us online last week, you might remember that we were reading through the story in Matthew and we were up to the Magi visiting Jesus. We're now picking up the story just after they've left. And an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph with a warning. Let me read to you from verse 13 of our passage. When they had gone, it's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. 
out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph gets another visit from an angel and this time it's a warning. The king, the bloodthirsty, power-hungry king is after Jesus and he wants his life. You see the rivalry here? If you allow me to call it that, even though it seems so mismatched at this point. Remember Jesus is a baby living in a small town in Bethlehem. His parents just seem to be ordinary people and he's pitted here against the king of Israel, Herod. Herod had his disposal, I assume, a command of armies. He has the power of life and death in his hands, or so it seems. I should say that although Herod has the power to issue death warrants here, in no sense does it seem that this is the right thing for Herod to do. Killing babies to stop them growing into something that might threaten your own power It's never the right thing to do, regardless of your moral code, is it? It's not simply a Christian ethic at play here. Murder, especially of a baby, is universally and ethically dubious. Here we have the most powerful person in the land using power in an appalling way. And it seems so one-sided. And yet it's not, is it? For God the Father is providentially watching over his son. And so an angel comes to Joseph, escaped to Egypt. And you notice the urgency in this passage. In a dream, an angel appears to Joseph. Then he wakes up in the night, takes Jesus to Mary and escapes to Egypt. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of reminded of those scenes that you see in movies sometimes. Perhaps like the end of The Sound of Music. The Von Trapp family singers are plotting their escape into the mountains or over the mountains into Switzerland. And there's real urgency in the escape. Just in the nick of time, they get out. For those of you who are familiar with the Exodus story, you might see kind of echoes of the Passover story here as well. The urgency with which this happens, but this time the direction is reversed. Joseph and Mary are heading not out of Egypt, but into it. I'll be wondering this morning, why Egypt? Why are they heading to Egypt? Well, well, there's a few reasons. Firstly, it was just a nearby country. It was also under Roman rule at the time, under the control of the Roman Empire. But King Herod, he had no jurisdiction in Egypt. It was outside of his rule. So Egypt was far enough away from the main threat to Jesus, that is Herod. And yet Egypt also was not completely foreign in a sense. At that time in the world, historians tell us that Egypt was home to about a million Jewish people. So at one level, Egypt was the practical place to escape to. But I want you to see that there are other reasons here. Can you see the echoes to the Passover in reverse? But I think familiar. But even more importantly for Matthew than the Passover, ex- the Passover and the Exodus story is that by going to Egypt, this validates Jesus as being God's son. In verse 15, we read this quote that Matthew lifts from Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. What do you think Matthew means by using that quotation from Hosea? It's a quote off the lips of God the Father, so to speak. Now, of course, at this point, Jesus is going into Egypt, but by going in, God can then call him out, can't he? I think this makes it really interesting, this story. For Joseph and his family, they're not just going to Egypt for a holiday. 
They're not just going because they want to take in the sights of the pyramids or they want to see a desert sphinx or something like that. They're running away because, well, murder's on the cards here. And yet in doing so, in escaping to Egypt, eventually they'll be able to leave Egypt. And Matthew's able to show us then how Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Hosea that makes him the son of God. And so we see from this passage that even in this really terrible thing, God is in control. That doesn't mean, of course, that God is endorsing or even making these terrible things happen, but it does show us that God's plans are not thwarted by evil in the world or by sin in this world. I think that makes this story really incredible for us, really useful for us to think about, given the course of our past year. Now, some of you might be wondering, how can Matthew really do this? Surely, Hosea, when he wrote these words, he did not have... Jesus on mind. I mean, Hosea was an 8th century prophet who wrote to the northern part of, of the kingdom of Israel. If we go back to Hosea and the wider context of this verse, we read this, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Surely when Hosea wrote these words, what he was actually referring to as his son was the nation of Israel and the calling out was part of the great exodus under Moses. Now that may well have been what Hosea had on mind when he wrote these words, but that does not mean that Hosea didn't write more than he understood at the time or that the prophecy has greater depth than even he realised at the time. To that Matthew would recognise this prophecy as being about Jesus, it's not really a surprise. Jesus is presented in the New Testament as, as being in some way a type of the nation of Israel. Don Carson calls him, here's a big word for you, the typological recapitulation of Israel. Reminding us that just as Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, so Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. You see, Jesus is like Israel. He fulfills Israel in that sense. And Matthew wants us to see here how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and here he's shown us with one example. And there are two more in this passage, but the first one is this. Out of Egypt I called my son. Despite the evil in the world, God is preserving Jesus, protecting him. And what's more, you can see at this point that this can't be God's second best plan. God's not thinking, oh no, that Herod guy, he's getting too powerful and too mean. What am I going to do with this? God's not scrambling at this point, is he? He's not trying to work out what to do. But he is active in preserving and looking after Jesus. It seems as we read it that it was his plan all along that he would call his son out of Egypt. And here he does that and he does it despite evil in this world. And yet despite this, terrible things still happen in Bethlehem. Let me read to you from verse 16 of our passage. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Jesus and Mary and Joseph, through the prevailing action of God, might have escaped this terror 
by going to Egypt. But the rest of the boys in Bethlehem under two, they don't. You might have read this story before, but it doesn't make it any less horrific, does it? You might be thinking, well, isn't the Christmas story supposed to be a story of good news and cheer? Wasn't it supposed to be about good gifts and good tidings and joy? But here's the truth in the Bible. It's it's not a glossy magazine, is it? This book doesn't shy away from the evil in the world. It doesn't shy away from the hurt that we can inflict on each other. Some of you might have been with us as we worked our way through the Genesis series where we saw in Genesis that every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. Here we see that evil working itself out. Put yourself in the shoes of the mothers for a moment here. Life was hard enough for them back then without a king murdering the children that do happen to survive the birth process. Can you imagine their heartache and the tears that would have flowed? Here's what it says in the passage. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew tells us that this weeping fulfills the prophecy in Jeremiah. You might be wondering, what does he mean here? Does he simply mean here that Rachel, who's kind of an ancestral mother to Israel, is weeping for the death of the murdered boys? Perhaps. But perhaps there's also more to it. And again, I'm leaning on Don Carson. See, this passage, although it speaks about weeping and mourning, this passage that Matthew quotes is really one of hope. Let me try and explain how it's a passage of hope. In Jeremiah, the weeping... The quote comes from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, the weeping is all to do with the people being carted off into exile. But God in Jeremiah says this carting off, this removal of the people, it will end. Matthew's quoting from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. In verse 16 it says this, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. In Jeremiah, God is saying, stop your weeping because the exile will end and your children will return to their own land. So maybe what Matthew is saying here is that in Jesus, the greatest exile ever is ended. The time of Israel wandering around, being far from God is over because here is God's long-promised King and Saviour. Despite the tears that flow, and they really are real tears, aren't they? Because Herod is a violent man and he's murdered children. Despite the pain and the evil in this world, there's real hope because the Messiah has finally come. God is again dwelling with his people. The new covenant promised by Jeremiah is here. And yet if you're one of the parents going through this, the world's still a pretty dark and evil place, isn't it? Despite the sin, despite evil, I want you to see here that God is at work in our world. His son is here and the exile is over. 
Well, sometime later in our story, we read that Herod dies. And again, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. You know, when I read this, I'm starting to wonder whether Joseph is starting to get a bit scared of going to sleep at night. All these dreams that he has with angels appearing. This time the angel says that Herod is dead. It's time for God's son to be called out of Egypt and for him to return to Israel. And dutifully again, Joseph does as he's told. And then he finds out, sure, Herod is dead, but his son, Archelaus, is now ruling. It's real life stuff, isn't it? Herod might be dead, but that doesn't mean that evil in the world is gone. From generation to generation, there is evil in this world. Terrible things are happening all the time, and yet God acts to preserve his son. Another dream this time for Joseph. I reckon I'd struggle to recall three dreams I've had this year. But for Joseph, they just seem to keep on coming. Israel, or at least I assume here Jerusalem or its nearby neighbor Bethlehem is still very dangerous. So head somewhere else, to Galilee or to Nazareth. In a way, this is a bit like thinking about returning to Australia. There are plenty of people at the moment, aren't there, who are stuck overseas in countries outside of ours. And I guess it's likely that most of those people will come into Australia via our two big cities, to Sydney or to Melbourne. But those are also the places, or the equivalents in the ancient world, where Archelaus would have had the most eyes. Most of his attention would have been directed to the city of Jerusalem or its nearby neighbour, Bethlehem. And so instead, Joseph and Mary head to a much more out-of-the-way place, a safer place. They head to a place like South Australia, like little old Adelaide. For them, it's Galilee and the town called Nazareth. And Matthew tells us that this fulfills what was said through the prophets. He would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's something strange about this last of the three prophecies that Matthew talks about. Firstly, Matthew doesn't quote a passage in the Old Testament and he doesn't use a prophet's name like he did with Jeremiah. Instead, he refers to prophets in the plural. And it's further complicated more by the fact that in the Old Testament there doesn't seem to be a specific text that refers to the Messiah coming from Nazareth. So what's Matthew doing here? Well, to get our heads around this, we need to understand what it was like to come from the town of Nazareth, or how the town of Nazareth was thought of. Put it this way, I think, in the time of Jesus, you didn't go to Nazareth for your summer vacation. It's not the nicest place to go to. It was more, you know, in Adelaide terms, I guess like going to one of our northern suburbs, the sort of place that you might get teased about. It's not polite or politically correct to speak of that sort of thing today, but I reckon you probably get the gist of what's going on here. Nazareth was not looked at, Nazareth was not looked upon with delight, but rather with scorn. In other words, Matthew means that by growing up in Nazareth, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would be despised and ridiculed. And yet this is God's king. This is God's Messiah. So today we've seen three things from our passage that show us God's providential care of Jesus. His providential care despite evil in the world. We've seen the escape into Egypt and yet that God meant that God could call his son out of Egypt. We've seen the weeping and mourning of Rachel and yet just like in Jeremiah, 
this means that the exile is ending. And we have the return to Nazareth and the reminder that the Messiah would be despised as the prophets of old foretold. What does it all mean for us today? Well, here I think is the big thing. God is still in control of the world in which we live. He's still sovereign over it. He's still concerned for it. He's still involved in our world today. Now, some people think that God created the world a bit like a watch, that he designed it really carefully, wound it up like you might wound up an old-fashioned watch or clock, and then that God just stepped back and, and watches the world sort of unfold or unwind or unravel. If that were true, that means that God's not really involved in the world in an ongoing way. Part of the good news of the Christmas story is that we see God at work in his world, providentially caring for his son, protecting him from Herod. And that shows us that God is in control of our world. Evil doesn't get in the way of God and his good plans for this world. The world, of course, has moved on, hasn't it? 2,000 years since the days of King Herod, and yet there's still evil and there's still hurt and weeping and mourning in our world today. This year has had its fair share of that. Birthdays gone, uncelebrated, trips missed, weddings postponed, or maybe the more serious, maybe you've been separated from people who you love. Maybe you know people who are sick and you can't visit them. You might be wondering if God's lost his grip on the world of late. Has he turned his back on it? I want you to be reminded by this passage that God is involved in his world. doesn't, of course, mean that there will be no suffering or no pain. But we do see that God's will will be done in his world. What's his will? Well, the Bible tells us that his will is that he will remake this world. That all people in this world will be united under his son. This part of the Christmas story shows us that Jesus is that true son. And it shows us that God providentially cares for him. And that should give us a great deal of hope. I'm not sure who's going to win the next tennis match between Nadal and Federer. If it's on hard court in Melbourne, it's a good chance it'll be the Fed. If it's on clay court, it's a good chance it'll be Nadal. But when it comes to the rivalry between God and evil in this world, we know what the eventual outcome will be. The cross has defeated the power of the evil one. His head has been crushed. Christmas reminds us, doesn't it, that God is active in this world. Just as Jesus came 2,000 years ago, this story reminds us that God is coming back again and he'll remake this world. He'll right the wrongs in it when he does. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. A God who cares for this world, a God who's still involved in this world. We thank you for the great promise that Christmas reminds us that just as your son came once and you were providentially in control of that situation, so he'll return again and when he does, he'll remake this world, undo the wrongs and put things right. Amen.